What's going on? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio, transmitting from the future free state of Greater Idaho. I am the one-armed madman. And with me today, we've got John Foster. John, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are we doing? Hi, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. So you have got a really interesting job. Uh, when I read your pro, I, I heard you on Towards Anarchy a couple weeks ago, and I was like, man, this guy, he's really, he's really got got a good deal going on right now. So why don't you explain to everybody what it is you do? Well, I have a company called Middle School MBA, and it's exactly like it sounds. It's it's an executive MBA for middle school kids. Uh, So we we teach business, economics, and entrepreneurship. Uh, And and the cool thing is that uh, we're we're truly blended in that we do the, the curriculum, we, we send software across the web, but we don't go to, to the kids, we go to the teachers. So we, we do a mind meld with the teacher and, and uh, then the teacher delivers uh, uh, classes and activities and experiments to, to their class. And so the beautiful thing there is that, you know, when you, when you do normal, but what people mostly think of as online education, uh, you're going directly to the student. You have no idea who that student is. And so you're forced to come in at the sort of the lowest common denominator. And, and that means that any kid with two brain cells is bored out of their skull. Sure. But the way we do it, we come in super high and then we, we rely on the teacher to, to bring kids up at the, at the optimal speed for those particular kids. And it, it just works like a charm. It's it's I love sitting in the back of a classroom and watching a teacher take our tools and and use them in their classroom. It's it's just really beautiful. That's cool because I would imagine most teachers probably don't know much about business and economics. Like based on my experience, I, I just got done with a, a two year degree here in Idaho that I, I never would have. I always have to disclaim this. Like I never would have paid to go to college, but. When I got hurt, they paid me to go to college. So I figured, you know what? I'll go learn about the enemy firsthand and get some some up close personal experience. That's cool that you go to the uh, the teachers. So like my um, my little brother just went on homeschool, and I was talking to his dad about it the other day, and and he goes, you know, it's going all right. Like he's in and out. It's hard to keep his attention it's really been tough on me. Like I'm having to read books and like, cause I don't want to teach him the wrong way, you know? And, and he knows now that he was taught the wrong way. So it, it's yeah. an interesting thing. Get, getting somebody like capable of teaching something the right way. But you, you know, there's a, there's a lot of help out there. Uh, oh yeah. Which you probably know. Oh yeah. The, the, the homeschool space is amazing. And, um, you know, there. So I don't know what age you're. you're He's eleven. Eleven. Oh, awesome, awesome. Um, Stanley Schmidt uh, writes a, a bunch of books called uh, "The Life of Fred," and Fred is a, uh, I think, a four-year-old professor who's <laughs> three feet tall. Nice. And and Fred goes around uh, doing various things. And, and Stan writes about everything, chemistry, logic, uh, personal finance, just, I think he's written some like 80 books. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and any of them, if, if, you know, that's your subject, 
just go grab the life of Fred and, and it's it's phenomenal they're, they're funny they're they're light but um, I'm amazed at how well he learns every subject but then he 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 brings it to you in a in a very clear logical sort of way that's cool now so, I've got some some last minute stocking stuffers I can pick up yeah 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 go go for that man yeah. it's, they're all great books for whatever you want to do so now what kind of um I guess are you going to public schools, private schools, charter schools, all of the above, homeschool? All of the above. Um, you know, the, the beauty is, the like you said, the teacher doesn't need to know any business or economics, just like most adults don't know any. And uh, we, we just drop right in. They need an hour or so to prepare. But we've, we've got our tools make it so clear and simple that uh, – you know, adults just get it right away, and and then uh, we we give them the everything they need to to deliver it to their kids. So it's everybody feels like they're punching above their weight. Everybody's happy about it. It's yeah. it's a cool deal. Yeah, I'm sure you guys use interactive videos and stuff like that. Like one of the coolest things I I think about like learning and job. I was a motocross racer growing up, so like I I didn't care about school or any of that type of thing. So I I didn't really like look for any academic things. Like now I love audiobooks. I listen to audiobooks every day. I love them. I've listened to like 200 of them since I got hurt. If I'd have known that was out there when I was a kid, you know, I could have had a whole lot more fun while I was in school. But, you know, they uh they really they really do a terrible job on economics in schools. When I was in high school, I had my senior year, I had one one class that was half economics, half U.S. history. We did, you know, half and half. So the second semester was was economics, and they went ahead and laid my teacher off before the end of the year and just had him finish out the year. So he was just like, you know what? Do whatever you guys want. So I came out of high school literally knowing nothing about economics. And, you know, at the time it was like, cool, easy class, I'm out of here. I never really thought about like how that would affect my life. And I didn't learn anything about economics. Till I was 30. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so much of what they teach in, in high school economics is, is Keynesianism to begin yeah. with. So they may have done you a favor, but yeah. just let you off the hook. Yeah. Right. I, I, that's actually another good point. Like I, my school, I went to a, I was 5,000 people in my town, 400 people in my high school, very small. And they would always complain to us, our, your, our schools are horrible. We need new books. We always need new books. You know, we got to get these new textbooks in here and then everything's going to be great. And now looking back on it, it was like, man, those old textbooks were the best thing that could have happened to us because they would have got those new ones in there and they'd have been really bad. Yeah, it's, it, it's true. You know, a lot of the, um, a lot of things they've made worse. They've made math worse. Mm -hmm. They've made, uh. I mean, obviously, they, they brought in a bunch of things, uh, all the woke craziness. You know, they, they, they can't teach kids to read or, or, or do uh, multiplication anymore, but they can certainly uh, tell them exactly how many genders there might be, whether it's 62 or, or 190 or whatever it is. Yeah. Now. You know, everyone, everyone can get that message. So they, they put a bunch of stuff in that shouldn't be there to begin with and, and crowded out and diluted the, the stuff that they really should be doing. And it's stuff based in communism. 
This is not like even Keynesian economics where we're talking about. Like a lot of this stuff is straight up communism, rules for radicals. Like you can go right into Marx and see what's happening in your eight-year-old's classroom, which is terrifying. Yeah, that's that's totally true. If, when and you know we we do a lot of uh, a lot of work on Marx actually in in our curriculum because once you understand it, you can see it everywhere. You know, we do it strictly from an economics perspective. We once the kids understand how markets work very well, then uh, then we juxtapose that to the Marxist system. You know, we actually go through Marxist theory, labor theory, exploitation, revolution, all that stuff. Strictly, no nobody's uh, thumb on the scale. You know, we 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 give the exact Marxist line, but they can see how that's uh, just completely antithetical to markets and 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 why it doesn't work. You know, neither back in the day or or today in Venezuela or North Korea or wherever. Yeah. So this is kind of the way I've I've like since I've learned about Austrian economics and and the way I've kind of conceptualized it is is one time I was in in a math class, it was algebra, geometry, whatever. I was in high school, early on in high school, probably a freshman. And uh, you know, the teacher will bring you up and and you have to solve the the problem on the board and and I solved the problem and he goes, "Okay, why is that correct?" And at that point, I hadn't really learned how to like back solve and stuff like that. And I sat there for a minute and I just looked at it and I go, it doesn't have any choice. It just has to be that way. Right. And that's kind of the way I look at Austrian economics and econo- like, this is it. This is the truth. This is how it has to be. Like, learn it the right way and you're going to be better off for it. <laughs> yeah. The, the beautiful thing is that uh, there, I, I, I told a, a group uh, a few months back that that uh, economics is a mess and it's always been a mess from from the get go because it's it's this tangled web that's, that's that we've had to kind of try to figure out and a lot of the nonsense has remained and new nonsense has, has been introduced uh, probably on purpose. And, and so you have to dig through the clutter, but, but there's some real jewels in there about how things simply must be. And, and then also some borders around the edges of what we can know. So we can say, okay, we know for sure that, that a demand curve slopes downward to the right. We don't have a clue what that means for the price of wheat tomorrow. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean so, so there are, there are limits to what we can know, but understanding what the limits are is is really important as well. Yeah, I, I uh, that that kind of like jogged my memory of a Mises quote where he said, you know, I'll, I know everything about money, but I'm never going to have any. And that's kind of that way, like you can know all about it, but you're you still can't know what the price of wheat's going to be tomorrow. Right. And that's down to like exactly. individual human action based on modeling of groups. Exactly. And, and you know, the. Uh, I don't know how how deeply you've you've dived into the Austrian the whole Austrian deal, but uh, you know people don't don't really realize that the Austrians have laid down some of the real cornerstones uh, of economics. The the subjective theory of value was the first one. You know Karl Menger was the first Austrian economist, and and he figured out subjective theory of value. And that still hasn't been totally absorbed 
uh, across the whole profession. All of everybody, everybody agrees. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. But but its full implications really haven't been absorbed, particularly by the the neoclassicals, which are probably the largest uh, school of of economists these days. Yeah. What are um God, some of the economists these days? When I was in college, we had we had this uh it, this assignment where you had to write about a New York Times journalist. And of course I picked Paul Krugman, you know, the villain of the times. And, uh, it, it was wild. Like in the initial post, it was like, this guy's a villain. He's a liar. He's wrong about everything. He never changes his mind, even when he is wrong about everything. And that was kind of the post. And then my teacher came back at me like, you were, this is horrible. This is the New York times. He's an economist. Who are you? You know? And then I, I came back with like a whole page of just like, he said this, he said that, he said this, he said that, this is all wrong. He knew this was wrong. This is clearly a lie. And by the end of the assignment, he sent me an email saying, you have, you have changed my mind against Paul Krugman. And I was like, oh, good for you. like what a win, right? <laughs> and that was in high school? College. College. Okay. College. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you had smoked him out by then. Yeah, I did. Well, there's a great podcast that I used to listen to by Tom Woods and Bob Murphy called Counter Krugman, where they just used to read his article every week. And I loved yeah. listening to that. That was great. Yeah, yeah, those guys were great. I actually went on one of their cruises. Did you Did you ever go on a Contra cruise? I have not. This That was kind of before my time, I think. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe yeah. so. Yeah, I didn't really get into this stuff. Eh, I guess it's been about 2016, 2017 is when I really started digging into this stuff. You know, I... I was a motocross racer. I didn't care about politics. I didn't care about economics. Like it was just death and taxes. You know, you pay the taxes. You don't complain about it. That's just how things are, you know? And one day I just ran out of things to watch on TV. I'd been sitting here for a couple of years and it was just like, I've seen all this crap. I'm bored. Let's see what's on the internet. I'd never really been an internet guy. Like I didn't do social media. I didn't like it. Still don't like it. But I, I, you know, logged on and I started listening to podcasts and pretty soon I'm, I'm finding people like Tom Woods and Dave Smith and totally changed my life as somebody who grew up as like in a neocon family. Who, we just didn't know anything. It wasn't like I was a neocon or, or my parents were like, they didn't know anything. They couldn't have told you what the difference between a Republican and a liberal was, but you know, getting into my thirties, it was really frustrating to see the way the establishment, just the order of, you know, the, the elites, how they just push you to being ignorant. And then when you actually do find something true that can improve your life, they call you crazy for it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, you know, the whole propaganda, uh, operation is, is extremely effective. And, you know, part of it is, is, uh, giving you information that they want you to believe. And part of it is keeping information away from you that they don't want you to be aware of. And uh, I've, I've always uh, underestimated the effectiveness of it. It was, it really wasn't until probably the, the whole COVID regime that, that I was like, man, this stuff really works. This yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I was completely taken aback by the way, the average citizen responded to the COVID regime, essentially. Like I was, I was a drug addict as a, as a, as a young man. 
And one of my first thoughts was like, well, they're like the drug addicts aren't going to listen to this. Like you think COVID's going to stop them from going and getting heroin? Like that's stupid. Like if, if the normal citizen sees the drug addict who's like dying, walking, still going around doing their everyday life, there's no way they're going to listen to this. But I was very, very wrong about that. Yeah, I, I have a different view of our society today as, as a result of that. Uh, and uh, it, I was I was really shocked at, at how people rolled over and and not only just that, but also um, wanted to be part of it. Yes. Wanted to rat out other people and, and wanted to be enforcers and 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 uh, we're, we're so sure that they were right, you know, that that it was worth you know, nailing your door shut or whatever they had to do to make you comply. Yeah. It's like amazing. Yeah. It's crazy. So I grew up in Northern California around normal people, essentially like they weren't political in any way. This was in the early two thousands. Nobody really was back when I grew up there. And then I lived in San Francisco for five years before COVID. I think I was there from 2015 to, eh, it was a little less than five years, 2015, 20, whatever. Anyways, it was amazing for me to see these people who five years prior, like were great people. Like I, I never had, nobody ever asked me. They all knew I was an oddity. I was from somewhere else. I rode a dirt bike. Like, you know, he's probably got guns, whatever. He's this crazy guy, but he's fun. We like him, you know? And now I live here in Idaho and it was like, because you live in Idaho, your opinion on COVID does not matter. It's like, well, why? Well, you live in a cow pasture. What you what what is true for you is not true for everybody else. It's like, guys, I sat in traffic for an hour and a half yesterday. There's a million people that live in the Treasure Valley. Like, what are we talking about here? And they just have this crazy view that it's like you either live in the city or you live in the middle of a field. And if you live in the middle of a field, you're an idiot and you should not be listened to about anything. Yeah, you know, I, I had dinner uh few months ago with with a guy who grew up in new york and he he lives in dallas now and, and we were we had dinner in dallas and he told me he said uh you know when i first came visit to dallas i was expecting to see tumbleweeds in dallas you know crazy right <laughs> out of touch where uh, the cowboys so play yeah, yeah. It's like you really think you're going to fill up a, a stadium every weekend when there's nothing but tumbleweeds? Like, come on, people. It's, yeah, it, it's wild. I, I, it was frustrating. It was very frustrating because it's like, I like you. You know, not, I'm not talking about like these people in San Francisco. It's like, I like you, but you're clearly insane. And yeah, I can't do anything for you at this point. And most of them like wrote me off as, as literally being insane. Not like, oh, he's just got these things wrong. Like, oh, no, this guy got hurt, he moved, and he went nuts. And we should not talk to him anymore. <laughs> yeah. And and now that in the in the course of time, you've been shown to have been correct about everything you said about COVID. Yeah. Still, still they don't care, right? They, no, they, they go, still, you weren't right. You were just right by default. You were being difficult. And it just turned out that they were wrong. You weren't right. They were just wrong. And they weren't wrong because they were just idiots, obviously. They were wrong because they only had so much information to work with. Right. You know, they only, you know, what were they supposed to do? And it's like, 
I was getting the right information. It's not they like it wasn't out there, you know? Like yes. you could subscribe to two or three Substacks and know like far more about COVID than Dr. Fauci. <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 just standard procedure for for me with if if I'm confronted with with something, okay, some situation and 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 person A says, "Okay, it's like this." Then I say, well, all right, who's who's the the best person that takes the opposite position? What do they have to say? I want to hear that. Yeah. You know, but but these people is like, oh, just give me something to cling on to and and that's that. And I'm I don't want to hear anything else. Don't don't shatter my illusion. Yeah. You know what's strange? Um, I'm a UFO guy. I like UFOs. It's like my my guilty pleasure. And there's this new UFO story that's coming out. It's like this picture of what's supposedly that MH370 plane that disappeared years ago with three orbs spinning around it. You may have seen it on the internet. I heard that on your, on your podcast. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So interestingly, like I, at this point, I don't know if that thing's fake or real. Like I, I, early on, I thought it was pretty real. The guy was making a very convincing case. Now there's been some evidence that has come up that has maybe shown some light, but I just couldn't believe how fast these guys who are UFO people who don't trust the government, don't trust anything. COVID was a lie will automatically fall back on, well, that guy who makes VFX for a living says that it's fake and he's an expert. So like, how can I trust you when this guy who's been doing it for 10 years? And it's like, when you go onto that guy's video and that guy may be right, the VFX guy, but he didn't do any research at all. All he did was look at the video and go, well, that's fake. And none of them even bothered to try to make it, you know? So it, it's interesting how even like, anti-establishment people who have been vilified and called crazy for the past, I don't know what, 50, 60 years automatically within a year will fall right back into the trusty experts fallacy, you know? Yes. And yes. that was it the, like, the most like disturbing thing about it to me. It's like, yeah, we've all forgotten about Dr. Fauci already. And that was kind of the plan, you know, like, let's just get him out of here. Everybody will forget about it and we'll just move on. Seems like and that works brilliantly. You know, it's it's just uh, move on. Let's let's get some other things out in front, and and the past will just recede. And here we go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Those who forget history. I feel like we kind of got off the rails here. I want to learn a little bit more about your economics stuff here. So, what are some of the like oh. key concepts that you guys teach? Well, okay, that's uh, that's a great topic. We. Um, so what we do is, you know, economics is has got a, a a very bad reputation with people. It's it's considered boring and and out of touch. It's a dirty and, word. It is. It is. Uh, you know what what we like to say is that uh, when when you say the word economics to somebody, they're likely to fall asleep before the third syllable. <laughs> you're just and, and so you're just saying I'm boring. <laughs> <laughs> so we were really careful not to have anything about economics in the name of the company. That's why it's it's middle school MBA. But and and it's also because we approach it from a business perspective. It's it's really the uh, you know originally the first economist was Aristotle, and he looked around and saw people engaged in commerce and and tried to figure out what what are the rules, what are, what's the nature of this thing that people are doing. And and voila, that was the the first uh, uh, the first of economics, and and he got some things right, but also a lot of things wrong. 
one of the things that he got wrong was uh, the source of value. Mm-hmm. He, he he bought into the labor theory of value essentially. Ah. That, that uh, you know the 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 worth of something's worth comes from its inputs. What did we have to do to create this? You know the the raw materials and the human labor and whatever that that imputes value into this thing. And now this thing has objective value that, that we can measure. And even at the time, people knew that that there was a problem with it. You know, they were like, well, wait a second. If that's true, then how does the value change? How is it that you can make a painting and sell it for a hundred bucks and then die and suddenly it's worth a thousand bucks? Yeah. You know, or be worth how can the value of things change once once there's no more labor or anything put into it. So people knew that was a problem. And then there's some other problems with the return of capital. But uh, nevertheless, that that hung in there until even Adam Smith um, perpetuated the labor theory of value. Uh, that was 1776. So that was yeah. a couple thousand years. And then, uh, and and of course, that's the, the basis of Marxism, yeah. this, this labor theory, yeah. right? Marx says, well, look, if, if all the value comes from labor and somebody else is getting a piece of the action, like this capitalist guy, then the labor is getting screwed. And, and since he's getting screwed, that justifies violent revolution to take back what was already his to begin with. Yeah. And so it, it wasn't until uh, 1871 that Karl Minger, the first Austrian economist, untangled this riddle and said, no, 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 wait, that's completely wrong. Value is strictly subjective. It's totally in in the mind of, of the beholder. You know, it, it's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. And it, and it's and uh, there there's nothing objective about it. And once he came up with that realization, everybody he he explained it and and instantly everybody says yes that's obviously right it solves all the problems we had with the labor theory blah 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 and and so that's that marked the beginning of of austrian economics and the the austrian structure springs from those insights in fact the whole world was was becoming austrian at that time and largely until uh, keynes came along and and took this big detour back toward a managed economy. Yeah, a very useful thing for the people in power. <laughs> for the people in power. Yeah. Yes. You know. Yeah, um, I I think that most people kind of have this abstract like Marxist view of of value of of prices essentially like the greedy capitalist sets the price. Me, the consumer, I have absolutely no say. I'm just over a barrel and I've got to give them what they want. Otherwise, I'm never going to get that product. And that's just not the case. Like, for instance, I rent rooms out in my house right now. I just had two people move out of one of my rooms that I get $900 a month for. I've had it on Facebook now for three weeks getting nothing. So I can charge whatever I want for that room. But it takes somebody else to see the value and say, okay, that room has $900 worth of value to me. Here you go. Exactly. And, and, and frequently the price is one of the least important things. Like how, how much time do you spend thinking about, well, 
what what would a potential customer like in this room and and on this property and right all these yeah. different materials oh. that, that might make it valuable to somebody else yes right not for you yeah i furnish the rooms i'm one of the only people on in my area that furnish the rooms i have nice beds i've got nice sheets and blankets i bought a couch for in the room like it's a nice room and i make sure that it's nice i keep it stocked with cleaning gear so they don't even have to like i want it clean and i don't want to put you over at a barrel to where you have to pay for the cleaning gear so i'm just going to supply it for you just keep my room looking nice you know yeah yeah so here here you are staying up staying up late at night trying to imagine what would make somebody want to 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 live in my house and and so every entrepreneur business owner is 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 doing that it's not just uh, okay. I go set a price and people have to buy it. Not at all. Yeah. You know, we have to please somebody. Yeah. So in in and in the case of like prices, so we'll have uh, kids negotiate, do, do negotiations, and discover prices, so they can see there's there's a lot of leeway here. You know, we 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 have to find prices again and again, and they're they're always changing. And so we'll start with with something like that to discover prices. And then we'll, we'll work them up through the theory uh, to the laws of supply and demand, which is sort of the abstraction of this business principle of, of finding prices. And, and we just do that again and again with, uh, with one topic after another. So we start really, really simple and, and build up to something profound. Nice. Now, do you teach kids about like, say, how do you teach kids about like saving? So for me, one of the, the the great concepts that I really locked in on right away was opportunity cost. I was a motocross racer. For me, like I had to work in order to go out to the track. So every other thing, it, a piece of pizza, a pair of shoes, you know, whatever, a, a new hat, gas for my pickup, whatever it was, was measured against the opportunity cost of going and riding my dirt bike, right? So, uh, how do you teach kids about saving and, and and prioritizing their money and opportunity cost? That's <laughs> terrible so, question. So in the case of, of opportunity cost itself, we, we teach that in a in a lesson called factory fun. And in in that lesson, the kids have a factory that makes four products. There's a there's a maximum amount for, for each single product, and there's a total maximum that they can make. And, and so you have to decide what not to make, right? And th there's your opportunity cost happening. And, and, and when we teach that lesson, it's a really fun lesson. It's, you know, it's like, okay, you can make these four products. This is the most you can make of, of each one. Total has to be less than this. Uh, what are you going to make? How, first, we say, you know, we kind of go through the rules of the game and plug in numbers so that they can see how they add up and when you run out of bounds. And, and then we go, okay, so how many different ways could you run this factory? And you're like, well, gee, at least a thousand. Yeah. You know, I could make one less of this and one more of that. And then we say, well, let's figure out the best way to do it. And, and we give them information about what each product is for. Like movie stars like this one, this one de-ices airplanes, this one is used in oil wells. And then they argue about how to run the factory and nobody can agree. And then we say, okay, we're going to give you some more information. Here's the amount of profit you make on each each product. Mm. And now instantly everybody's on the same page and yep. there's one way to run this factory and everybody agrees about it. 
Yep. And then then we'll instead of giving them profit, we'll say, okay, well, here's the cost of, of these and here's the the revenue from them. So they figure out the profit and they run the fact, you know. So we keep doing that and they get they get super good at both understanding what is what does profit mean and and then optimizing to get the the maximum product profit. Yeah. And and then we'll say, okay, so um, we have a project where we could spend a uh, million dollars and make this much more product C. Do, do you want to do it or not? And so then they do a payback analysis on that and, and you know, see how long it takes to pay back and decide, you know, what if that was $10 million, you know, and then, whoa, whoa, no, we don't want that one. Yeah. So we, that's how we introduce opportunity cost and, and, uh, optimization and we just we there are so many different concepts that are yeah that are buried or conveyed in in that lesson now i had to learn that lesson the hard way <laughs> when i was a younger man I, I was into drugs i sold drugs and one of the first things i learned when i was selling marijuana is you've got different you know different well i i learned this smoking marijuana but you know you've got different quality levels you've got really good stuff you've got really bad yeah. stuff and then everywhere in between and you've got to, you know, everybody wants that really good stuff. Like that's what everybody likes. It makes you look cool. It, it gives you that, you know, nice, shiny, bright sign, neon sign over your head. But you make the money on the nasty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it sure is nice that you're able to teach kids about this stuff and not have to like go out and learn about it. I feel like most kids don't learn about economics in the right way like growing up, I, in a lot of ways, like I got lucky in learning about economics through real world experience. Here's a question for you. Do you have better luck teaching kids that have zero experience in economics or have already been taught the wrong way? Cause as a bartender, I always loved hiring people from within that had zero experience. I want to teach you to do it the right way. I don't want to have to break any of your bad habits. Well, in, in our case, none of them have ever had any because that was kind of my thought that thinks you can teach economics this young. We're, we're the we do it younger than anybody on the planet with the in the case of uh, the teachers who are doing it. Um, actually, the, the everybody does a good job. You know, they don't we don't need any kind of experience from the teachers because we've given them a really a very straightforward path. The, the ones who have had some economics, uh, actually, most of them, strangely enough, have, have, have been Austrian, so it's, so it's not an issue. And the few that have, that have not been have, have really tended to, to glom on to the method, you know, say, wow, what a great way to get these points across. For instance, and, and, you know, we never, we never make a big deal about whether we have an Austrian structure or any other structure. We just, uh, you know, we just use it. We, we developed a, a 3D model that's, that follows the Austrian structure. You can see it on our website. And it's, it's so much clearer than the circular flow diagram that even people who were trained on the circular flow diagram, they look at it and they go, oh yeah, this, this is what actually happens. And I see exactly how to explain this to, to somebody else. So, so even teachers that have some, some other experience tend to find the tools so helpful that uh, they, just, they just glom onto them right away. 
my uh, my macroeconomics professor in college was a socialist, and she taught with socialists. Like the first week, it was okay. I want you to listen to this podcast on NPR, and I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And I log on, and it's some socialist economist, and I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell are we doing here? And it was, you know, it was it was such a, a ridiculous class. It wasn't even a real economics class. It was listen to this podcast and, you know, fill out this thing that, that, you know, it, it was ridiculous. I, I, I was so disappointed because I was kind of looking forward to the economics. They did macro first and then they did micro second and micro was better than macro, but the, the macro one, it was just the, the final, the final essay for the class was if you were, a, you know, the head of the Fed or the head of Treasury, whatever, your boss for the day, how would you balance the budget and kill the deficit? And it's like, what, you're going to ask me an impossible question and then expect me to write five pages on it? What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, um, macroeconomics was invented by Keynesians to support exactly. Keynesians. There, there is no macro. There's only micro. It's just yeah. human action. So, so the micro is essentially correct, what they teach. Mm-hmm. But then they say, okay, now we're going to do macro and and all the rules are different. And nothing we said in micro applies anymore. And you're like, well, wait, wait a second. So when when I have when I have one business, it has certain rules. When I have six businesses, there's certain rules. At some point, there's some number, 6,000 or 600, where all of a sudden the rules suddenly shift. How many is that? And and why does that happen? And what's the what's this mechanism between micro and macro? There's none. Yeah. You know, it's uh it's a big fantasy. And one of my um one of my crusades is to replace the, the circular flow diagram with with our model, which we call Linky. Mm. Oh, what's that? The uh the circular flow diagram is is uh like I said, it's it was built to justify Keynesianism, just yeah. like the rest of macro. And and it supports, if you want to be a socialist, the, it'll support you. If you want to be an MMTer, fine, go for it. You know, it's it's uh, just really a distortion and, uh, and a mess. Do you see MMT making any traction, or is this just going to kind of be a, an abstract thing that, that leftists and socialists fall back on, or, or is it going to make its way into the mainstream? I mean, it kind of already has, but not in the same way as like Krugman at the New York Times. Well, you know, MMT was <clears throat> was really doing well un- until inflation hit four or five percent. Because you know, their story is, well, just keep printing money, keep printing money, and and it's not a problem unless there's unless you have a inflation, and and then you raise taxes or something to reduce inflation, and it's. You know, it's it sounds. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's 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 getting something for nothing, right? That's and and that always sounds great. Free is free feels really really good. Free feels much better than ten cents. You know, no matter what you're talking about, and it's very seductive. And so, MMT has had this seductive story of of. Uh, you know, we really don't need to work. We don't, there, there aren't really trade-offs, you know, there's no opportunity cost. Everybody can just have more money and it'll be fine. But when inflation, you know, finally 
reared its head, uh, it seemed like all the MMTers went went silent. Because what are they going to say? Uh, you know, exactly. Like, are, exactly. are you going to keep saying transitory, transitory, transitory over and over and over again and expect people to just buy it? At some point, the the one that kills me now is they go, oh, inflation's coming down. It's like it's not coming down. It's just not going up as fast. <laughs> yeah, we're still paying 30, 40 percent more than we were paying three years ago for, for things. Yeah. I mean, I got lucky compared to my friends. Like I, I live here in Idaho. I'm from California. When I got hurt, I got priced out. Essentially, I was working a, a, a bar job in San Francisco making six figures. I decided to go into line work. And I took a lower level job so I could get into the industry faster, essentially. I could have waited and maybe gotten a, a better job, but I was like, I'm going to get in early, make less money, get through my apprenticeship faster than everybody else and get into it, you know, get into a journeyman position wherever I want earlier. So I moved here to, to Idaho in 2015 and I got in on pre-inflation prices. But like now, all my buddies who were, oh, what are you moving to Idaho for? You're going to live out in the middle of a cow pasture. They're all moving here and they're paying twice as much for houses that aren't as nice as mine. You know? Yeah. Which part of Idaho are you? I'm, I'm going to be jealous. Oh, I'm in it's Nampa. Be- I'm about 30 miles, 40 miles from Boise. It's a nice place. I'm in Nampa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what a place. Yeah, it's great. I love it here. I was I was skeptical on moving out of California, but when there it, when it was just inevitable that I had to, this place is great. You know, I, I, I was able to find a house. My, my, I moved into a house on a cheaper mortgage than I was paying for rent in my place in San Francisco. Yeah. Share with like six people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people are so nice in Idaho. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It's great. I just love the people there. I, I'm, every time I go there, somebody does some incredibly nice thing for me just out of the blue. Yeah. Some somebody you know some stranger just comes and does something really nice. Yeah, and I was I was talking to a, a couple from California one night when I was out there, and I I just had this this amazingly nice thing done for me, and and I'm telling them the story, and I come to the punchline, which is you know even nicer, and and they're just nodding their head, they're not impressed. So yeah, that's what they do. That's how it is here. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I a couple of weeks ago I was. Uh... This was embarrassing, but I was in a gas station and I don't know how it happened, but I like reached over to close my door and somehow my thumb got stuck in the door. Oh no. And I'm just stuck there and it hurts. Like I'm pushing on the thing, trying to get it open and I'm just stuck. And at this point it's like, all right, what do I do? And I, I like could get to the horn. So I'm like, start honking the horn with my elbow. And then the guy, the, uh, attendant or it might've been a customer comes out and they're like looking out at me. They're like, what the hell? And I'm like, Hey, hey, hey. you know, just like, come over. Yeah. And finally the guy comes over and he looks down and he goes, Oh my God. And he opens the door. And I was like, man, if I was in California, I could have been stuck in the car for an hour. <laughs> yes. Oh, it was a nightmare, but I, you know, it's great up here. There's a good thing going on here. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the greater Idaho movement, but I think we're uh, 11 out of 13 counties in Western Oregon are, are have all voted to secede to Idaho at this point. The only thing holding it up is Boise. If Boise would, you know, we, I wish we could just put a dome over Boise and just kind of isolate it from the rest of the state. <laughs> well, doesn't Washington state, aren't, aren't they also in the way of that? Yeah, there, there's a lot. Of, there's, uh, I think, five or six counties in Northern California as well, which that they'll never let that go. 
But I think that a lot of people are, are thinking that if, you know, secession in the United States is going to happen, it'll probably happen in Texas. I think it's more likely to start up here, actually, which is it's it's a cool it's a cool thing to be a part of, I think. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really interesting movement up there. Um, and I, I think we really need a lot of that. I mean, why shouldn't we be able to redraw the lines? You know, certainly within the U.S. Uh, I mean, West Virginia decided to leave Virginia. Yeah. Uh, the the world didn't collapse. Uh, I know there are probably a lot of places on the border of Texas that would prefer to be there than than in Louisiana. Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know if Texas would take us, but <laughs> hey, you know, you can always try, right? Ugh. Yeah. All right. So here's something I wanted to talk to you about. I think it's designed that adults don't know anything about economics. So my grandfather, I had a lot of respect for him when I was, when I was younger. Um, he drove truck his whole life, you know, like 30, 40 years, he drove truck and he listened to talk radio the whole time he was in the truck and he never listened to music. He doesn't even like music, which is so freaking strange. But anyways, he, uh, he retired, he put all of his money into the market and he did well for a few years. And 9-11 hit, he lost his ass, had to sell four acres. 2008 hit, lost his ass again. Now, once I got older and kind of learned what he did, I lost all the respect I had for him because he did the bare minimum. You know, he listened to Rush, he listened to Kramer, and he just kept it. Kramer burned him twice, burned him on 9-11, burned him in 08, and he's still listening to Kramer. You know, I, I try and talk to them and just be like, hey, you know, maybe you should look into this guy or this guy or have you have you heard of Bitcoin maybe? And it's just like, oh, no, just Kramer. Like, what are you talking about? So is this a design? Like, I I look at Kramer as just this evil, disgusting person who is there to steal your money and just take your home and make you poor. Am I off base on this? I I don't know if it's if it's by design. My. Um, you know, the, the default is ignorance, right? And in, unless you actually work at it, you're going to be ignorant of particularly something like, like economics, because it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not at all obvious. So you, you know, you can kind of count on most people being ignorant. I don't think you have to. I was, them. I was completely ignorant. I had no yeah. desire to learn it. I, you couldn't have tried to teach it to me. So I get that. And, and so I think more likely it's a matter of taking advantage of the natural fact that, that there's so many ignorant people. You know, my, my dad used to always quote uh, whoever that, I guess it was, I forget who it was, who said uh, there's a sucker born every minute yeah. and, and two to take them. And I, I think that's really quite, that, that's what I think is going on in, in that case. You know, there, there are all these people who want to take advantage of, and, and the way the uh, the system is set up, where the uh, the Fed is there to bail out the big players that get into trouble, well, there's there's no downside to them taking the wildest risk imaginable and and doing crazy things. You know, giving a, a mortgage to somebody who can never pay it back, or you know, they're going to get bailed out when things go against them. But the little guy's not going to get bailed out. And so they just get crushed every, mm -hmm. every time 
the cycle turns around. Yeah, I mean, we have to we have to have moral hazard. You know, we have to pay for our mistakes. Where these people will never pay for their mistakes. If they make a bad investment, who cares? The Fed will bail us out. You know, we just added what another six trillion dollars to the deficit in the last two months. That is insane. I don't even know how that is possible. Yes, you 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 have to have the consequences fall on the actor, right? If 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 I get to do something and the consequences fall on you, well, then I I have no incentive to 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 be particularly careful, and that's exactly the problem. I think it's uh, Thomas Sowell, you know, has has something about uh, the dumbest thing you can do is is to allow people to make decisions for which they don't bear the consequences. Yeah. So what do you think about things like Bitcoin? I, I'm a Bitcoiner. I've got some Bitcoin. I don't have all of my money in Bitcoin, but you know, it, it's an interesting position that I've been put in because I, I kind of feel like if I hadn't gotten hurt and I just went into line work and bought a new dirt bike, I probably never would have learned anything about any of this stuff. And I might've been poor my whole life. You know, I'd, I'd keep cash in the account, buy stuff on credit cards like my parents mm-hmm. did. And in a way, I got lucky where I, I, now I'm, I'm not going to be poor my entire life, fingers crossed, because I'm doing the right things. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about like gold and Bitcoin and the dollar? Where are we going? Well, you know, um, none of these, every, all these things are uncertain. You know, the, the, the future is unknowable and, and uncertain. That's, that's the nature of it. Uh, I think from an investment standpoint, you need to diversify. So you need to you need to be need to think about different scenarios and say how would I, how would my portfolio perform in in these different scenarios? Because it's always different every time. You know, it's it it, it never repeats exactly any given cycle. But but given that that you you know diversification is your friend. Um, I've been very late to the Bitcoin party. It's it's only in in very recent months that I've done the deep dive and and I totally believe that it's it's a thing now and and I'm starting to invest in Bitcoin. Um, it's like a, you, I'm it's interesting first. when you get it, you get it. You just see it and you go, oh wow, right? <laughs> you know, Fidelity has a great white paper that they wrote back in uh, 2020, I think, uh, about Bitcoin and. And they really answered a lot of the, the doubts that I had at the time. And then there's this guy, Safe. Uh, oh, yeah, Safe Adina Moose. Safe Adina Moose. He wrote a great, Bitcoin the Bitcoin Standard, a great book. He's an Austrian guy. economist. He's, he's the man. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, one of my buddies is, is all in on Bitcoin. He, he just loves fucking Bitcoin. He doesn't know anything about Austrian economics. And uh, I gave him, you know, I gave him a couple books. Here, check this out. Check this out. Check that out. And immediately he's like sending me text messages like, all right, so wait a minute. Whoever Satoshi Nakamura is, if it's one person, this person had to be an expert in Austrian economics, an expert in programming, you know, an expert in cryptography. Like how the hell does one person or even a group of people make something like this? And I I thought that was funny. Yeah, well, you know, he he didn't have to be, he just had to understand uh, a bit about money, I think. Right. Um, because at its root, Bitcoin is relatively simple. The, the, and and that's its, that is its, uh, one of its strengths is, yeah. is 
the fact that it's simple means that it can be understood and it and it can be loaded onto all these different servers all over the world and the network. So I mean it's the simplicity I, I think is is quite nice. And the um you know the the whole decentralized nature that it, it really looks like it's impossible to stop. You know, it does, right? I, I, I rack my brain at night sometimes thinking about how they could screw us, but it'd be tough. Like the, the one thing that worries me, and this was actually going to be my last question for you was, um, I've been accused of being a bit of a catastrophist at times. Like I, I think that the big crash is, is coming sooner, probably sooner rather than later. And it's probably going to be pretty ugly. Like I, I think California is well on its way to being Cuba. And, uh, you know, my buddies still own homes there. And I'm like, sell your homes. My sister still lives there. Get out. Like, just get out and go. <laughs> how, what do you think, how worried should people be about the, the big one coming? Is this going to be sooner rather than later? Or are they going to just be able to keep limping it along like they've been able to do? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, to you know, you to to be completely honest, uh, Austrians have called the last five of the last three yeah. uh, recessions. Right, yeah. we, we're always looking for a for a downturn. Certainly, it's going to happen at, at some point. Does it look like Argentina, or does it look like uh, uh, some other place? My guess is that it's it's more an Argentina style. You know, nineteen seventies inflation. And and then potentially Argentine type inflation, but but nobody knows for sure. Um, and it's I think timing the market has always been sort of a fool's errand. Uh, yeah. So you know again I think diversification and at at some point yeah I I think it's going to get ugly and things are going to unwind. Uh, and I, I think. Think you have to prepare for that you know bitcoin gold cash real estate you know diversified investments and but but then uh, one of the things that safe says that's that i i really like is uh i don't want to claim his his thing here but he says uh he says you know invest in bitcoin and then go live your life yeah because you know, if you if you spend your life preparing for for the crash, whether it comes or not, you know your your life has been spent. So, try to 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 be prepared enough, to be diversified enough, and and then enjoy the good things in life because there there are really so many of them. I can't think of a better way to get out on that, John. It was a pleasure having you. Merry Christmas. This is uh, this will be out New Year's Eve or not New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Have a good night. Thanks, John. Yeah. Oh, you Merry got anything? You got anything to plug? What's your website? I think you've already kind of middleschoolmba.com. You that's can it. find everything, Perfect. everything there. That, that's all you need. Perfect. Sounds good. Take it easy, everybody. Good night.